We're in Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. So if you have a Bible, let's go ahead and look at Luke chapter 24. Last week we just celebrated Easter, which was great for me. Um, it's one of my favorite times. Of the, actually, it is my favorite time of the year. But one of the reasons why I love it when Easter's in April is because it's baseball season. And I love, I'm a baseball enthusiast. I got to play in college and uh, I got to travel around and play for a long time. Um, I love baseball. But on Easter Sunday especially, it's a combination of being able to watch baseball and take a nap. And I don't know why, but those two usually go hand in hand. Um, and so I just loved Easter. But what I loved about Easter was the reminder that Larry gave us of the uniqueness of Christianity. I don't know if you've like I let that sink in, but Christianity is literally the weirdest thing ever. And it's not because of the way we behave, though that might be strange to some, but it's because of what we believe. We actually believe that, a, that, that God became a human being. He died and then he rose again. Wait, what? And, and resurrection is the, literally the thing which distinguishes Christianity from every other religion or philosophy or way of life. It's the resurrection which differentiates everything. And what's really interesting is if you stop and think about it, that makes Christianity just weird. We, we really worship a guy who was dead but came back alive. That's strange. Um, I don't know if you know what Portland, Oregon's uh, city slogan, unofficial slogan is. But it's this, keep Portland weird. So that is for the artists and the creative types who just want to continue to kind of, you know, like just be themselves and be different and just be unique and be weird. And here's the reality is we as Christians, we, we have the, the, I don't know, temptation or the, the pull from the world and from other sources of trying to kind of, uh, I don't know, round off the edges of Christianity and, and to not make Christianity weird. But the reality is this, brothers and sisters, we got to, let's keep Christianity weird. Which means we need to make sure that we never minimize the resurrection. We, we never minimize that God became flesh. We never minimize that Jesus died on the cross for sins. We never minimize that he ascended to the right hand of the Father. We never minimize that he's coming back again and he's going to consummate his kingdom. We never minimize that stuff. Keep Christianity weird. And the passage that we're about to read is one of those passages where you actually see the disciples revealing to us the weirdness of Christianity. I love that. It keeps it just, yeah, I don't know, just, it's just, it's, I don't know what the word is. I should have had one before I started mumbling. Anyways, um, Luke 24, verse 36. I'm going to show you this. This is, this is really cool. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were all startled and frightened and they, that they thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, 
I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him. Returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And were continually in the, temp- in the temple blessing God. God, this is so good for us. I pray, Lord, that through this text you would do what it is you know that we need, whatever that may be. God, would you comfort us if we need it? Would you confront us if we need it? God, would you reveal yourself in powerful and mighty ways? Grant us the spirit in abundance, Lord, that we may understand and unpack and really believe what it is that you have laid out for us in this text. God, teach us, I pray, about the the weirdness of Christianity, but the truth of Christianity that you have come for us to ransom us and to save us. You've done all that is required. It is finished. And God, grant us all that we need by your grace to love you and to joyfully respond in obedience to you. So teach us now, we pray, for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. I love this because Jesus appears to the guys, the 11 disciples, and and presumably at least two others and maybe a whole host of other people. He appears to them in bodily form. Look at this in verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus stood among them and said to them, peace to you. Now, what were they talking about? Because he says, as they were talking about these things, and I think this is significant. Jesus had encountered two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he begins to walk alongside of them and they strike up a conversation about everything that had begun to happen in Jerusalem, about this p- potential Messiah named Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified on a Roman cross. It's been three days and he's dead and so now their hope is lost and they kind of think, man, I don't know what to do anymore. And so in uh, verse 27 of Acts chapter 24, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus began to interpret to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so he begins to explain to them about the events that happened in Jerusalem, the death of Jesus, and how the Messiah was supposed to rise from the dead. And it says in verse uh, 31 that, or in verse 30, that Jesus took bread and blessed them and broke it and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized Jesus. They recognized him like, whoa, there he is. In verse 35, it says they had uh, went back to Jerusalem to the disciples and when they were there they began to tell the disciples what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread verse 35. I love that because it just paints for us a context for why we gather together in communion that these disciples did not see Jesus he was veiled to them but in the breaking of the bread Jesus broke the bread and blessed the bread and then all of a sudden the eyes of these two disciples were open and they beheld Jesus <gasps> that's who you are likewise when we share communion together as a church we get to break the bread drink the cup and we're praying and anticipating and begging God God would you reveal yourself and who you are in the bread show us who you are i love that That it's in the breaking of the bread that God chooses to reveal himself to the disciples and he chooses to reveal himself to us. Even today, that's possible. And in fact, more than likely, it's going to happen. Some of you will walk away having encountered Jesus in a way you hadn't before. You will leave today having a fresh perspective of Jesus. And that's God's doing. God did that. 
So he stands among them and he says, peace to you, which makes sense because he's the prince of peace. But look at the, the response of these disciples. There's four adjectives that are used by Luke to describe what in the world's going on in their hearts and minds. Look at this in verse 37. There's two. But they were startled and they were frightened. They thought they saw a spirit. The Greek word is pneuma, which means spirited. Also, we would understand it as ghost. So Jesus comes in. Hey, guys, peace to you. <gasps> Troubled, startled, frightened. It's a ghost. Okay, there, there's no idea in the disciples' mind. They're like, oh, hey, Jesus, welcome. We thought you would rise from the dead, and here you are. It's not like that. They were completely floored by what they saw. Are you kidding me? <laughs> we thought you were dead and buried. And he goes, I was. But what are you doing here? I'm risen. What? What? Do you guys sense that they're just like, this is unfathomable what's happening right now. All right, keep going. Then Jesus says in verse 38, he asks two questions. Why are you, here's an adjective, troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Or in other words, guys, why are you surprised at me being here? And why are you having a hard time believing that I'm actually standing here in your presence? What, what's going on? You see, Jesus isn't like mad at them because they didn't understand what was going on. In reality, he's kind of reminding them that, you know what, I told you guys already that this was going to happen. In fact, it says in the book of Luke that three separate times Jesus told the guys, hey, look, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. I'm going to be dead and buried, but I'm going to rise from the dead. And they're going, wait, what? And then finally he enters into the room and says, told you. And they're still going, what? 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 Ghost. That's the only thing they could conclude. The reason is because supernatural experiences are very difficult for us to explain and to actually believe. And not only in the time of the disciples, but also in our day today. You see, even in our culture today, whenever you have a supernatural experience, inevitably somebody is going to explain it through naturalistic rationale. For instance, when I was in college, I tore my labrum and I went to my church and I asked them to anoint me with oil and pray over me that my labrum will be healed or else I'm going to lose my scholarship and not be able to finish going to Biola University, which cost a billion dollars a semester to go to. So I asked the elders, please help me, help me, help me. So they anointed me with oil, according to James 5. They prayed over me and lo and behold, guess what? I was able to finish my baseball career. Torn labrum, no more. So I began to explain that to people. If I actually have been healed and I was actually able to play baseball. And people go, well, I'm, but, but what, what really happened? What? No, no, like what did you do to heal your arm? Uh, I had people pray for me. No, 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 no. Like, like what did you do? do? Do you see what's happening here? Even I had people after the last service when I told this story, they go, did that really happen? Do, do you understand? We are Christians. We believe supernatural is, is real. We believe Jesus rose from the dead, and yet we have a hard time letting supernatural things like kind of infiltrate our lives. We want natural explanations. And so we can't, we can't fault the disciples for seeing a supernatural event and interpreting it in natural ways of not saying Jesus is risen from the dead, but instead saying he's a ghost because that's a natural explanation. And so what Jesus wants to do is help them along the way. So he wants to prove to them 
to kind of, you know, to put down their doubts a little bit. He wants to come alongside of them and help them to understand the resurrection, knowing full well that the resurrection itself is something which is incredibly difficult to believe. Okay? That's what makes Christianity weird. It's not something you would have ever invented. You know, invented religions and invented philosophies are simply this. Do better. Try harder. And then you'll earn your way into some kind of post-death bliss. Christianity is actually the opposite. No matter how hard you try, you're terrible. You'll never do enough that will get you there. Oh, and don't worry about it. God has done everything you need for you. It's called grace. It's completely the opposite. And so Jesus wants to help them understand and, and apprehend the resurrection. So here's what he does. Why are you troubled and why do you have doubts in your hearts? I also love this because it's the tenderness of Jesus. Notice he doesn't backhand anybody because they doubt it in their hearts. You have doubt? How dare you? Instead, he's like, I recognize your doubt. I'm going to try to do something for you to help you along the way. Okay, here we go. Verse 39. He says, see my hands and my feet, that it is myself. Touch me. See, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. That's so gentle and merciful of Jesus to do. I'm here. Touch me. Can I? Yeah. Touch me. I'm real. I have bones and flesh. And I think he does this simply because, again, like I said, the resurrection is so just supernatural. It, it, it blows your mind. And, and sometimes I think what's really important is we have to realize that just because something is supernatural, it doesn't mean that it's unnatural. Hang on to that thought. Let's look at Acts chapter 17. When, when, when uh, Paul was preaching about Jesus' resurrection, look at the response of some people. So he's preaching in Acts 17 in the city of Athens. And it says in verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Okay, we know that. We know, understand that. Mocking. Ha, ha, ha. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So here's Paul preaching Jesus crucified and resurrected. And some people going, yeah, you're an idiot. That, what? That's stupid. That never happened. Are you kidding me? And then other people are going, well, that's weird. Could we have like maybe go grab coffee and maybe talk about this a little bit more? Because that's bizarre. And then the third group of people in verse 34 actually joined Paul and believed. But just remember, two-thirds of the people who heard that Jesus rose from the dead thought it was weird and could not believe it. And then you pick it up in Acts chapter 26 where Paul is giving his defense to Festus. And he says, to this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to the small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, which means he's the first of other people to follow him. That he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as Paul was saying this, these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. That's the normal response to, hey, this guy who's God in the flesh died and, and risen again. <laughs> yeah, okay. Dude, you're crazy. That, what? No. And then it goes on, your great learning is driving you out of your mind. And Paul responded, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I'm speaking true and rational words. Or in other words, dude, it happened. I literally saw him. I've seen him and heard him. It's true. But you see, the resurrection is incredibly difficult for us to grasp because it's supernatural. 
We want natural explanations. You see Jesus, you interpret it as a ghost. But I want to make sure that we understand that because it's supernatural, it does not mean that it's anti or unnatural. And what I mean by this is when Jesus tries to uh, help the guys along in their understanding, he actually reaches out his hands and encourages them to touch him. Which means Jesus has a physical, real life, natural body. And some people actually believe that the resurrection of Jesus is not a physical one, but is a spiritual one. That's a false teaching. That's not taught in the Bible. In fact, that is a heresy, which means it's completely false. And if you believe that, you may end up in a not so happy place. So we got to make sure that we understand that Jesus is the first one to rise from the dead with an actual physical body. And remember, he's the first, which means there's other people coming after him. Who might those people be? Take a wild guess. You and I, if we're Christians. Which means you and I are one day going to get a resurrected body which is actually physical and you can touch it. Which is important because some people are scared to death of heaven. Because they think they're going to be some sort of disembodied ghost and there's going to be an eternal church service where there's an infinite amount of ghost choir. And we're just sitting there. And you're just like, this is, why do I want that? And you have to remember heaven Heaven, the new heavens and new earth, the new creation is a physical place. It's actually real. When we get there, people who we will see will be able to touch. And we'll be able to like hold hands. And there will be physical place. Physical bodies require physical places on which for us to walk. So that's amazing to me. It's just to remember that heaven is not some disembodied floating around nebulous kind of like existence. It's a physical, actual place. It's amazing. So Jesus wants to make sure that we understand that. As C.S. Lewis writes, in Jesus' resurrection, Jesus has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of Adam. He has met, he has fought, and he has beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. It's a new chapter in cosmic history that God has flung open. That's the resurrection. It's the beginning of the new creation. And any of us who are in Christ, we are a new creation. Beautiful. And yet you remember what Jesus does. He shows them his hands and his feet. What happened to Jesus' body and his hands and his feet? That's where the nails were driven in. So Jesus not only has a physical body, but we have to realize that in his physical body bears the wounds of the nails in his hands and feet. Now just let your mind just explode inside your noggin right now. Just God has a body that he will have forever. And God having a physical body forever has wounds on his body forever. Which reminds us of two things. Number one, we celebrate Jesus risen from the dead. He's the triumphant lion of Judah. Yeah. But at the same time, we see in Revelation 5, he's also the bloody slain lamb of God. And so when we get to the new creation, we get to behold Jesus. We see his wounds, which reminds us that the redemption we experience came at a very hefty price. And there is the one to whom we owe all of our, our gratitude for redemption. It's the slain lamb of God. 
the triumphant lion of Judah. Both at the same time. So, so Jesus is trying to get these guys' attention. I'm real. I have a real body. When you die, you can get a real body. Upgrade. Read the rest of 1 Corinthians 15. It's amazing. And then he goes on one step further and says, okay, I not only want you to touch me, but I also, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something for you. In verse 41. It, this is kind of a clunky verse and in, in it's kind of hard to read. It says, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. In other words, they still disbelieved. They still had a hard time understanding what's going on. And yet at the same time, they were filled with joy and marvel. So just think of that. That's very confusing where you're like, this is the greatest news in the, in the whole world. And I'm not sure exactly what it is. But I'm really excited about it. That's kind of how they feel. So Jesus does the only thing which we would assume he would do, which is this. He asks the question, have you anything here to eat? What? That seems so mundane. Right? You just rose from the dead and you're concerned about getting a snack. Like what, what's going on here? So Jesus wants us to understand that his body is so physical and so real, so natural, that he can eat. So they gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it. And he ate it before them. You imagine that for a second. You think this is a ghost. You hand him some fish. Oh, this is going to be interesting. You imagine it's going to go in his mouth and pop right onto the floor. <laughs> but he just chews it up and swallows it. And you're kind of like, this is crazy. Are you getting a feel for how weird Christianity is? Let's keep it weird though. Don't deny this stuff. It's good. And this also reminds us the goodness of food. Think about Jesus in his resurrected body. Jesus in the body he will have for all eternity eats. So don't, uh, when you go eat lunch today, don't just minimize what you're doing. That's a fantastic thing you're doing. God gave you taste buds. And it's not because he wants you to just use food for pure utilitarian sake. He wants you to eat food in joyful gratitude to him because he made food taste good. Like, if, if God didn't want that, everything would be tofu. <laughs> but that is why we are infinitely grateful that God is so diverse and, and he has variety. Because not everything is tofu. There's actually really good things to eat. And if you understand what I just said, you understand what I just said. So, so brothers and sisters, let us, remember, remember what Paul says, whether we eat or whether we drink, let's do it all to the glory of God. Sometimes we make our prayers so like just, just huge, Lord of heaven, thank you for your provision. Sometimes you just got to go, God, this food is so good. I think it's just so, oh, thank you. That's, that delights God. All right, let's move on. I digress. Verse 44. Jesus now thrusts himself into a second line of proof that he is risen from the dead. The second line of proof that he is risen from the dead is based on scripture. It's based on scripture. So I think this is important for us to understand that Jesus not only physically shows the guys that he's resurrected, but now he's going to go to a second line of argumentation and proof that he's resurrected from the dead and, and the question is, why is Jesus spending so much time and energy proving that he's resurrected from the dead? And we have to remember Romans chapter 10, verse 9. 
that the only way to be saved is if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And the second part is what? That you believe in your heart that Jesus rose from the dead. Notice it doesn't say you have to confess Jesus is Lord and believe Jesus died on the cross for you. No. Because 1 Corinthians 15 says if Jesus died on the cross but didn't rise from the dead in Christianity is bunk. It's not true. We have to believe that Jesus is Lord of all and that he is resurrected from the dead. If we don't get those two things right, we don't get saved. So Jesus wants to make sure that we understand he has indeed physically, supernaturally risen from the dead. And the second line of reasoning is from scripture. Look at how he puts this in verse 44. He says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Or in other words, guys, you shouldn't be shocked that I'm standing here amongst you. I told you three different times that this was going to happen. I told you that I was going to Jerusalem and that I would be handed over to sinners and they will crucify me. I'll be dead and buried and I'll rise again. Three times I told you that. You shouldn't be shocked by that. And the reason why I told you those things were going to happen was because the entirety of the Old Testament told you that these things were going to happen. Now, this is important for us to understand. What Jesus is doing here is he's laying out for us in these next four or five verses how to understand what we call the gospel. I've done this a couple times and I've helped people articulate the gospel because the gospel is a big word and it's oversaturated in our culture right now where people use it all the time, gospel, gospel, and sometimes we just, when you hear it so often, you just forget what it means. You guys understand that? You become overly familiar with it. So the best to understand the gospel, let's go back to Jesus and see how he kind of unpacks and articulates what he means by the gospel. And I've said that there's three C's to the gospel. Number one is you have your context. That's kind of the background. That's the, the story behind and gives the information for why that's important and what uh, the events, why they're significant. Then there's the content, the, the events themselves, what actually happened, who did them, and what is its meaning. And then the third C is the consequence. What are we supposed to do about this information? How then shall we live? So those three C's help us to kind of articulate and understand the gospel in a very clear way. We need to know the context, the content, and also the consequence. And I, don't, I didn't make this up. This is literally what Jesus does. So let's look at this. Verse 44 again. These are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So what Jesus does is he tells the guys, look, man, everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, and just stop there. That may not hit you. But for Jews at this time, their Old Testament Bible, the Hebrew Bible, was divided into three sections. The first section is the Torah, which is commonly referred to as the law of Moses. The second section is called the Nevim, which is the prophets. And then the third section is called the Ketuvim, which is Shorthand is the Psalms because it's the longest uh, book in that category, which is called the writings. And together they're called the Tanakh. So Jewish people read what's called the Tanakh, the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms or the writings. Did you notice what Jesus said? All of the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, the Torah, the ne uh, Nevim, and the Ketuvim, all of the Bible in the Old Testament, everything was written about me. 
So that's Jesus's context. What I did, who I am, and why it matters is laid out for you in the Old Testament. That's the context, which is a, a huge encouragement for you and I. We have to remember that if you pick up a New Testament, you may understand much of it. But the reality is much of the New Testament is dependent upon the Old Testament. And if you don't have the Old Testament, you can't make sense of the New. That's why the authors in the New Testament quoted what? The Old Testament. And so Jesus does the same thing. He wants you to understand that in the Old Testament, it's Jesus concealed. But in the New Testament, it's Jesus revealed. And that is incredibly important if we're to properly understand the gospel because we need to know its context. Secondly is the content. What is the gospel about? What are the events? Who are the people? And he picks it up in verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, Thus it is written. Okay, so thus it, here it is. It's written in, in there, the Old Testament. It's written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. That's the content of the gospel. That the Messiah, Christ, the anointed one, that's what that means literally. The anointed one is God come in the flesh and called the incarnation. We celebrate it every Christmas. And that this anointed one lived a perfect sinless life but was crucified. For the forgiveness of sins. And then he resurrected from the dead just as the scriptures say. Which means, you know what, when you pick up Genesis through Malachi, what you're doing is you're grabbing that Old Testament book and you're approaching it trying to, trying to see who the Messiah is, what he's done, and, and why that's significant. <clears throat> now the consequence of the gospel, verse 47. What we should do with this information. Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So if you come to an understanding of the content of the gospel in light of its context of the Old Testament, the next step is to actually act on that and the action that Jesus prescribes is proclaim, announce, herald, tell, speak of repentance and belief in the gospel for forgiveness of sins. And so it leads me to believe in conclusion that we would say this, if you're not speaking and articulating the gospel, it very much might be because you actually don't know it. Let that sit in for a second. Because they're all interrelated. And I remember reading this for the first time and I'm thinking, if this is true, that the greater depth of understanding of the context of the gospel, the greater understanding of the content of the gospel leads me to a greater burden that I must share it. Then if I'm not sharing it, it's either because I don't know it or because I'm intentionally refusing to get to know it because I know that it implies I need to share it. And that hit heavy to me. But that's the gospel. And if you notice, there is a, there is a, a kind of relationship between the gospel and being a witness. Witness, as you see it in Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 26... Repeatedly, over and over and over, Paul says, Jesus revealed himself to me. Jesus revealed himself to me. Jesus revealed himself to me. And the next thing is, so that I'm a witness, I'm a witness, I'm a witness. The reality is, in the book of Acts, one of the main reasons why Jesus ever reveals himself to anybody is so that he can be used by that person to witness to others. That's heavy. And in fact, if we're to be effective witnesses, 
you and I must understand Scripture rightly by having our minds opened through the Spirit. And the reason I say that is because there are a whole host of ways to read the Scriptures improperly. And I know that does not sit well in our culture. If you tell somebody they're wrong, it's like, oh, oh my gosh, you're going to hell. And it's regardless of whether or not they actually, like if, you know, somebody, hey, George Washington's the fourth president of the United States. And you're like, no, actually, you're wrong. <gasps> How dare you say that? How unloving. No, you're just wrong. Stop it. And, and what's really interesting is we live in a culture when it comes to textual things like the Bible and stuff like that or like, you know, any, any kind of like literature. We, we have this philosophy that we approach every text in a deconstructionist perspective. And what that means is this. The text itself has no meaning until the reader determines its meaning. Okay, so we see that all the time where the, the meaning of the text, it, it doesn't exist. You have to determine what it is. So you're in your, you know, literature class and it's like, what do you think the author meant? Oh, who cares about that? Just how I feel. Oh, great. But in Bible studies and Christianity, we have the same thing. It's like, hey, let's get around and read the Bible. What do you think? 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 Sweet. Let's close in prayer. But the reality is this guy contradicted this guy. This guy's on a whole other planet. This guy, I don't even know what in the world he's talking about. Let's close in prayer. We're all, we're all equally good. We're good. What ends up happening is this. We've just pooled our ignorance together and nobody has done anything. We just simply say, oh, I think this. Oh, yeah, all right. Way to think that. And the reality is, is it possible that what you think about it is just dead wrong? And as a pastor, I've said that before. Oh, you're reading that wrong. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's my interpretation. Well, I know it is, and it's wrong. <laughs> I don't know why you're clapping, because many of you. <laughs> In a few minutes, you may not be clapping anymore. So. I'll give you an example from the Bible about how the scriptures are used improperly. Okay, here we go. Uh, John chapter 5 verse 39. Jesus says to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Now what he means by in them is that knowledge of them, acquaintance with them, familiarity with them, the scriptures, is what saves you. In other words, the more Bible you have memorized, the more names of the books of the Bible you have memorized, the more uh, that you know the themes and the interconnectedness of the Bible, the greater chance that you're going to be saved. And in some way, that, that's kind of true. Except for Jesus finishes it and it says, well, wait a minute, it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. And so what he's done is he just told you, like, look, 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 you know what the scriptures all are about? You, you know what all of them are about? Me. They're about me. And the one way that you can not approach Scripture rightly is to go to Scripture and leave Scripture unable to answer this question. What did you learn about Jesus? And if the answer is, I don't know, nothing, then you have used the Scriptures improperly. Not according to Phil Ward or Golden Hills, but according to Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Because he said all of the law of prophets, or the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, all of scriptures, the Tanakh, they're about me. He says you can't have life if you just know scripture. So Bible memorization, awesome. Do it. But that won't save you. 
knowing the 66 books of the Old and New Testament and memorize, great, sing the song. That ain't saving you. Now, I know David said, hey, hide your heart that you may not sin against me. That, that's great. But Jesus finishes by saying, you refuse to come to me so that you may have life. These scriptures are here for you so that through them you get to me. Jesus says, I'm the one that gives you life, not this. This points you to me. And that's why it's so important, brothers and sisters, that we don't, we don't mess around with this book. We don't, like it's some kind of like spiritual fortune cookie inspirational book. Where it's like, oh, I just need my verse. I'm going to write it on my mirror and every day be inspired. If you leave the Bible full of yourself, you have treated the Bible wrongly. This is not a magic eight ball. God, give me, give me some wisdom. Yes, here it is. We laugh and giggle, but I'm telling you, honestly, you and I, because I know I've done this before, you and I have done that. God, I need to make a decision. What should I do? <sighs> okay. That's not how that works. Okay. Let's keep going. The other thing about it is we need to make sure, as Jesus says, look at this, or not Jesus, Luke, Luke writes this in verse 45, that Jesus opened their minds to understand the scripture. You see, you aren't born intuitively understanding the scriptures. I have people come to me all the time. They're like, man, the scriptures are hard to understand. I know. I know. In fact, Jesus said that he has intentionally kept certain things from people. And that the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given through the spirit. I'm going to give you just a couple quick verses. I don't have it on the screen for you. Um, but I'm going to give it to you anyways because you're the third service and you get extra. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes about this concept. He says, now we as Christians have received not the spirit of the world, but we have received the spirit who is from God. So that we might understand the things that have been freely given to us by God. And we impart these things in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But you and I as Christians, we have the mind of Christ. So what Paul does is he says, look, scriptures are hard to understand and unstable people who have a lot of selfish tendency and motives are going to twist scriptures and make it all about them when it's really all about Jesus. But if you have the Spirit, you are given the mind of Christ. So that having the mind of Christ, you can understand the deep things of God that God has freely given to you. In other words, you can't know God and understand God and unpack God's scriptures apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. We are utterly dependent upon God to understand God. We get that? So here's, here's the thing is I, I love prayer requests and I love when we pray. But sometimes I just wish at times I could just yell out. Let's st I, I get Aunt Nancy's hip is broke. We need to pray for her. But at the same time, if we understand the dependency we are, a place of dependency we are to God to understand him, we should be pleading every day, give me the spirit, God. I want to know you. I want to know the deep things of you. Give me the spirit. Give me the spirit. And the Spirit is given in Ephesians 1, chapter 13 and 14, according to Paul, when we hear the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and we believe it. So if we hear the gospel, believe the gospel, the Spirit comes to us. 
Ephesians 5 says, stop getting drunk. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Which I naturally ask the question, how? How do I get filled with the Spirit? Ephesians 1. You are filled with the Spirit when you hear the gospel and you believe it. So the more I reenact and remember and reflect on the gospel and believe it, the more that the Spirit is poured out of me, the more I'm filled with the Spirit, the more that I understand the deep things of God, the more empowered I am, the more equipped I am to not only be about myself, but to be about other people in proclamation of the gospel. We are utterly dependent on the Spirit to do supernatural things. All right. Now, you may not believe that the gospel is a supernatural endeavor, but it is. There is no reason why anybody would ever believe the weirdness of Christianity apart from some kind of supernatural intervention. This guy, Jesus, is God, crucified and risen. I believe that. God has enabled me to believe that. And Jesus has to open our minds to understand the scriptures. We are utterly dependent on the spirit. That's why I always pray, God, give us the spirit in abundance. And then we close off with this. That the spirit is promised in verse 49 as the promise of my father. Jesus says, stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Stay until you are clothed with power. And then he takes them out to Bethany, lifts his hands, he blesses them, and then he ascends. He ascends to the right hand of the Father. Let me ask you this question. Why is Jesus' ascension important? In fact, I believe that Jesus' ascension is essential to Christianity. Absolutely essential. Let's read a little bit about what Jesus has to say about his own ascension, and then we'll finish up. Jesus tells the disciples, I'm going away. And he says, I have said these things to you, and sorrow has filled your heart. Your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper, who is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. And then Jesus says in John 15, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father... The spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Jesus tells them, you need to wait for the spirit to enclothe you with power. But then he says that the spirit, when it comes, it's going to enable you and equip you to be effective witnesses. But at the same time, we're told that the Spirit enables us to rightly understand Scripture. And so when people talk about this great work of the Spirit, the Spirit comes. We want the Spirit to come. Spirit descend. I oftentimes wonder if do you want the Spirit to descend to us that we may rightly understand Scripture and so that we can witness more effectively? Or do you want the Spirit to come because you want its benefits? Remember, if you ever treasure the gifts above the giver, you're an idolater. We get that. We understand rotten kids who only want Christmas presents and don't want to say thank you. We get that. And yet, look at this in John 14, 12. Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. You're going to do works that Jesus has done, perhaps even healings. And then he says this, and greater works... Than these, greater works than what I did, 
you're going to do. Wait, what? Christian, just let that settle, settle in for you. Are told by Jesus that you're going to do greater works than Jesus did. Wait, what? Because, he says, I am going to the Father. Because I am going to the Father, you will do greater works. Now, when Jesus goes to the Father, what happens? As Jesus ascends, the Spirit descends. And in Acts 1.8, we're told that we are going to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, causing us to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So the greater works that Jesus says we're going to do is going to be granted to us through the Holy Spirit, equipping and empowering us to effectively be witnesses of the gospel. But here's the catch. The greater thing than what Jesus did is this. Jesus never went to all the nations. He stayed in Israel. You and I's greater work is this. We're going to the nations. We're going. Jesus never went to Africa, North and South America. I'm sorry, Mormons, you got that wrong. Jesus was in Jerusalem and ascended in, in, in uh, Bethany. But you and I, we are the ones tasked with going to the nations, empowered and, in, and clothed and equipped with the Spirit to go and proclaim the gospel effectively because we rightly understand Scripture through the Spirit. And when Jesus comes back, he will consummate his kingdom. Acts 1 verse 11. They were watching Jesus ascend. Two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, he will come the same way you saw him go. In other words, Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, it's a wrap. Punishment and reward are coming with them. And I love communion because the very last sentence in Paul's explanation of communion is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, it's you proclaim is plural. When we gather together as a church, we are corporately proclaiming by our action and by our singing and by our praying that we believe Jesus is dead and risen and coming back. It's a reenactment of the gospel. So as we take communion and we hold the bread and we hold the cup and we look at these elements symbolizing his body and his blood, reenacting the gospel in tangible form, we pray and we beg God, grant us the spirit. Strengthen me with the spirit. Give me your spirit. Reveal yourself to me. Do this for me. And that's why we celebrate communion. So Father, help us, I pray. As we come to your communion table, to come so eager to be filled afresh by your spirit and by your presence. God, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for all that he's accomplished on our behalf. We thank you for the opportunity as a church to share this communion table. So God, meet with us, I pray. Pour out your spirit. Help us to beg you for the spirit to be filled. And God, would you answer our prayers for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.